are listening to the Thornapple Valley Church Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Our hope is for you to be encouraged and to connect with God during this message. If you'd like to know more about Thornapple Valley Church, visit tvcweb.com. Well, good morning again. Everybody doing good this morning? Awesome. Awesome. Well, today we're starting this series called Should Happens because the truth of the matter is we all have to deal with the should. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to somebody on your right or somebody on your left, and I want you, you can do this also online. You can type it in the chat and just tell them should happens. <laughs> See, it really does. For every single person, we all have to wrestle with these ideas in our mind of this is what I should do. This is what I shouldn't do. Here's how I should live. Here's the challenges, the struggles we all have to deal with the shoulds. You know, you might not be able to see it or recognize it right now, but there's somebody on your role who's wrestling and working through that. You know, I was thinking back to uh, earlier in the service here at the Hastings campus, my wife, Jen, was singing. She sung that first song. I'm honest. Can we give it up for my wife, Jen? So these days, uh, we've got teenagers, and then we've got a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. But I can remember in the early stages of parenting, it kind of felt like getting to church was less of an act of worship, and it was more of a miracle. Does any parents know what I'm talking about? I remember in those early stages, so, so Jen was singing this one particular Sunday on stage, and I was actually going to be preaching. So she's going over her song in her head, and I'm going over my message in my head. And so we split up our duties. So she took our oldest daughter, got her dress, and then I was working with my son at the time. We only had two at the time before we had four. So working with my son, and I'll never forget, I got them all together. I'm going over my sermon, and I got him in this little outfit, and before you know it, he poops in his outfit. I'm thinking, okay. All right, so then I'm thinking, okay, now we're going to be a few minutes late, so then I'll go get him, and I'll put him in the bathtub, and while he's in the bathtub, next thing you know, he poops in the bathtub. And that was the moment I thought to myself, there's a demon of diarrhea trying to keep me from church, but I'm going to deal with it. So we get him, put him together, and then, you know, you're going through the checklist. All right, you got the baby bed, you got the diapers, and then we put him into our uh, minivan, or I call it a swagger wagon. Can I get an amen up in here? Anyway, so get in my swagger wagon, come to church. I'll never forget that feeling of, like, we did it. But now we've got to do it. Getting on stage and working through all the shoulds that I had to deal with. Here's how Todd Clark will define a should in his book, Should Happens, is he says, shoulds are expectations that we place on ourselves, on others, and on God. They're expectations that drive us. See, you might not recognize it, but there's somebody on your row, and they're dealing with the case of the shoulds right now. They're thinking to themselves, I should have got to church on time. I should read my Bible. I should obey the Bible. There's some of you right now thinking to yourself, I should be more honest on my dating profile. Can I get an amen up in here? Some of you know that on your dating profile, you said that you were 28, and you know that you're 38. Jesus is watching you. But we're dealing with these shoulds. I I, I would imagine that there's some students in here, and you're thinking to yourself, I should be more honest with my parents. Uh, Last week, last month, last year. 
I would imagine some of you who've walked through a painful experience in a relationship, you're thinking to yourself, I should start, stop feeling sorry for myself and actually post a dating profile. We all deal with the shoulds. You know, as I was thinking about this and thinking about this concept, you know, in the book, Should Happens by uh, Todd Clark, he talks about how for most of us, this starts in childhood. All of us have a childhood that's molded us, that, that's told us this is the way that you're supposed to live, supposed to act, and supposed to think. For me, mine started when I was a kid, and it started with a profession that my dad chose to be a part of that he didn't take my input on. He chose to be a pastor. We actually have a picture of my dad and my uh, two brothers that we're going to bring up on the screen. This is a picture of my dad and my uh, two brothers. So that's my dad in the middle. That's my older brother, Wayne, in the backdrop right over his shoulder. And then that's my younger brother, Joe. Now, if you're wondering why we're all wearing those LSU jerseys, is that's the year that LSU beat Ohio State, and they won the national championship with Ohio State's third-string quarterback. So I guess all I can say is sometimes should happens. But anyway, let's just keep going. Here's my point. You know, I remember when my dad decided to be a pastor I can remember there was something inside of him that said, if you're going to be a pastor, that means something for us. That there's a weight, there's a responsibility, that we've got to act a certain way because we don't want to disappoint our dad. Here's actually a picture of my dad preaching at his church in um, Louisiana. And I can remember sitting there thinking, there's two ways I can deal with this expectation. I can be the part, I can pretend to be the part. And that's what I did. For, for years, I knew the lingo. I knew how to act like I had it all together. But on the inside, I thought to myself, that's him, not me. And I'll never forget, one day I'm at this youth camp. And while I'm at this youth camp, learning and being a fake, I'm at a real God. And in that moment, all of a sudden, I stopped having to pretend because my faith became real. And it became my own faith. But right after that, I then found myself dealing with another should. See, my older brother, Wayne, when he moved out the house, he said, hey, I'm done with all this, playing games, so, so I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do my own thing. So because he became kind of the reckless son, I took up this secondary should that I'm supposed to be the good son. So I'm supposed to be the counterbalance, so I'm supposed to make straight A's, and I'm supposed to do everything that you're supposed to do right. And so I went to my school, and I started a Bible study, and it started with five kids, and by my senior year, it grew to over 250 kids, but it wasn't good enough. I should be doing more. 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 And this followed me all the way into my early adulthood. I become a pastor. I started in, in a little youth ministry, and it wasn't big enough. It should be bigger. It should be reaching more people. And I can remember just living under this stress and this pressure and being driven and driven and driven and driven. I'll never forget one Sunday, actually about an hour south of here, I was youth pastor at a church. I remember one Sunday I was supposed to be on stage. And so I'm, I'm putting myself through the paces. Okay, Keith, you got to say it right. You don't Make sure you don't mess up. You got to do it right. Do everything right. And so I'm under all of this pressure, and I worked all night. And I'll never forget, in the morning time, when I was supposed to be on stage, I overslept. And I woke up at the time that I was supposed to be on stage. And I'll never forget having this moment of fear and dread. 
And the thought that went through my mind is the thought that many times goes through most of your minds when you feel like you're not good enough, you didn't do what you should have done, is I thought to myself, I'm not good enough. Not that I made a mistake, but I'm not living up to what I'm supposed to be. And I'll never forget in that moment feeling embarrassed and ashamed. And, and I call my mentor. And in that moment, I just wanted to hide. And I, and I just said, Adam, I just don't. I thought that I had it, but I don't. And I'll never forget him saying something to the effect that really challenged me and woke me up. He said, sometimes, Keith, in order to get a breakthrough, first you have to have a breakdown. Sometimes this false image that we put up in our own minds, who we say we should be, how we should live, that's got to come down so that we could live real. And here's what I know to be true. There's some of you came to church today and you're living under all of these expectations. You've been driven by all these forces that either you put on yourself or somebody else put on you. For some of us, we just kind of have to run into the wall. And then when we run into the wall, we realize that, you know something, that's what grace is about. That's what Jesus is about. Because none of us could be perfect. We needed a perfect Savior who could give us grace and who could help us grow and who could help us grow in time and through process. See, in Acts chapter 4, which is where we're going to be at today, we're going to meet a man who found himself dealing with something similar. So if you've got a Bible, that's where I'm going to be at. While you're getting to Acts chapter 4, we've been walking through the book of Acts over the last few weeks. And what we're learning in the book of Acts is how God's power showed up to people who needed God's power, who needed God's grace. They needed the opportunity. They needed change. We talked about a guy named Peter who had fell down so many times. We, we talked about those disciples and how they're trying to follow Jesus, but they mess up and then God's power shows up and then something incredible happens. This thing called the church is born. If you're there with me in Acts chapter 4, I'm going to drop down to, um, we're going to start in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. It says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Now, in a moment, I'm going to get into this character that we're going to talk about. But I just want you to imagine what it would have been like to be a part of a church where there's so much unity. It wasn't about a personality. It was about the presence of God. And because these people were so unified, they felt like they were brothers and sisters. When one of them had a problem, they all had an issue. They all had a problem because what they believed is that when they accepted Christ, that the Holy Spirit supernaturally baptized them into the family of God, and they were family. So they loved one another. They cared for one another. Here's the result of that in verse 33. It says, With great power the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet and distributed it to anyone who had need. What would cause people to act like this? Well, they've got to experience a change from the outside. This was not behavior modification. This was internal change. But then you're going to go from this zoom out to zooming in on one individual. This guy was so important, so godly that he actually makes the Bible. There's a lot of people doing this, but there was something about this guy in verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought it, brought the money and put it at the disciples' 
feet. So now we go from talking about all of these good godly people to talking about a guy named Joseph. But it's not his real name. His name, they nickname him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, I don't know if you had a nickname growing up. When I was in high school, I had a nickname on the basketball court. They called me Michael Jordan Jr., but that's not important. But anyway, um, totally joking. My actual nickname was Last Picked. That's what my nickname was. It was kind of like, hey, Keith, we already got teams, but if we need you, well, we got you, bro. But anyway, here's the point of the matter. You got this guy by the name of Joseph who is so godly, so life-giving, that they nickname him Barnabas. They nickname him Barnabas, and it's a name that sucks so much that from this point on in Scripture, he will never be referred to as his original name, the name that his parents gave him, Barnabas. I mean, Joseph, they will always refer to him as Barnabas, son of encouragement. I don't know if you've ever had somebody who you've ever been around who was always encouraging, always believing in you, always trying to lift you up. That's Barnabas. But Barnabas, with that reputation, came some expectations. Here's the very first should that I think Barnabas had to deal with, that he had to wrestle with, is he felt like because the Bible says he was a Levite, that he always had to be moralistically and ritualistically pure. Let me explain. If you look back at your Bible, it says that he was a Levite. Now, if you're a serious student of the Bible, that means something to you. There's a whole book in your Old Testament that is devoted to this tribe of the people of God called the book of Leviticus. They, they, were, they, were, they were special to God. They were holy. This is where the priests came from. And then the Levite, they were the ones who handled the special sacred objects. So all of his life, he would have heard, you are special. Not only are you special, but you are cut above. You're supposed to act different. You're supposed to live different because you are a Levite. And I can imagine the weight, the pressure. Now, I have to tell you, I've never been a Levite, but I know what it's like to be a pastor's kid. We've been called PKs or MK minister's kids, and I know what that's like. Every time somebody sees you, they expect you to know the Bible verse. I'll never forget being on a playground and doing something. They're like, aren't you Pastor Brown's kid? And feeling like, I don't want that. I don't want that pressure. And that's why I rebelled, because I just didn't want to live under the expectations of what somebody else thought I should be. That's what Barnabas is dealing with. He's dealing with this expectation that he's always got to be the guy who has it together. You know, I wonder if this hits you like this. Maybe you grew up in a family that it wasn't all about morals, but it was all about academics. And in your family, it was always, your parents always told you a B is not good enough. It's not good enough. So, so you always felt like, you know, other kids are like, dude, I passed the test. And you came home and you're like, oh, man, I got an A minus. It's going to be bad. Because there was something on the inside you, I am not good enough. Or, or maybe it was sports and academics or, or, you know, it's interesting. I said academics, but athletics. You know, I wonder what it would be like to be the son of somebody famous. Everybody has expectations for you. You've got you've to go further. You, it's not just good enough to you to achieve the same level of success as your dad. You've got to be better and greater. Barnabas dealt with that. But then here's the next one that really 
kind of jumps out at me. It says that Barnabas is so wealthy that he buys a field, sells that field, gives all the money to the church. So obviously he could live without that. And so I wonder if that caused him to feel like he always had to be extravagantly generous. Because he has it. Here's what I've learned over the years. So in almost 25 years of pastoring, I found that some of the wealthiest people that I met are some of the loneliest people that I met. And here's why. Because there's this weight that comes with their wealth, and here's the weight that they have to deal with is that, do you really love me for me, or do you love me for what I can do for you? Some of you, this is your story. It might not be all of your story, but there's a certain part of you that when you're in conversation with people, you don't even want to tell people what you do because you know that automatically they associate that with wealth, and you just want to be known for you. And and if I'm going to be honest and genuine and real, I'll tell you, this is why I just want to be a normal person. I love what I do. I'm passionate about pastoring people and leading the church. But normally when I meet people, I just introduce myself as Keith. And then we're hanging out, we're talking, we're doing whatever. And then there comes that moment where people says, well, what do you do for a living? And that's where it gets awkward. Because immediately I know as soon as I say that I'm a pastor, that have you ever had this happen? You're talking to somebody and you say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christ follower. And they immediately stop swearing. And you think to yourself, okay. All right. Now they feel like they have to change their behavior because they assume that I'm going to judge them. I'm going to be like every other pastor that they've ever met. But going back to Barnabas and this weight of wealth that he carried, I wonder if every time it came time for offering, everybody's looking at Barnabas like, hey, we got a need. Barnabas, are you going to step up? And imagine the weight that he felt that were in his own heart and in his own soul. He's thinking to himself, just because I can doesn't always mean that I should. Just because I can doesn't always mean that I should. I imagine some of you have family members who are like that and they are always having a, a situation or a problem. And, and you're the one who broke the cycle. You're the one who made it out of poverty. And you think to yourself, because I can, does that mean that I should. Barnabas is having to deal with this, and I imagine that it is extremely challenging for him because he's built up a reputation, and his reputation is the son of encouragement, which means that I think that Barnabas had another kind of expectation that he lived under, and that final expectation was this, is that he felt like because he was the son of encouragement, he always had to be unconditionally loyal. Loyal, because that's who he's known as. You know, if you track with the New Testament, if you keep on going through the book of Acts, you're going to meet a guy by the name of Peter, which obviously he's there. But you're going to also meet a guy by the name of Paul. Before he becomes Paul, his name is Saul. And he is a killer of Christians. He's feared. I mean, it would be like meeting the leader of ISIS. That's who he is to Christians. Every time, if you say you're a Christian, Paul has got your number and he's coming after you. Well, one day as Paul is going through his life and he's on his way to kill Christians, he gets blinded by a light and he meets Jesus. When Paul meets Jesus, he's knocked to the ground and Jesus says, I am the one that you're persecuting. And then all of a sudden, Paul is going to come to a real faith in Jesus. But here's the question, how do you do that? Because the people who sent you out to kill Christ followers, Christians, 
they don't want to associate you with you anymore. And then the people who you now are a part of, they don't know if you're the real deal or not. And this guy named Barnabas is going to take the risk. He's going to show up and he's going to love. And he's going to care for Paul. He's going to help Paul to grow and become who God calls him to become. And in Acts chapter 13, here's what's going to happen. Paul has now proved himself. And there's going to, have a, there's going to be a prayer meeting and the church is going to send Paul and Barnabas out on a mission. The very first mission they go out on, Barnabas is the leader. But this guy named Paul, he's got the gift, he's got the goods, and he slowly begins to eclipse Barnabas, and Barnabas doesn't even care because he's a son of encouragement. It's not about him, it's about the mission, it's about God's calling. And Barnabas just, it just keeps on going, and Paul keeps on going. But Barnabas is so committed to people that he has a cousin by the name of John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. John Mark, when he starts faith, he's a little shaky in his faith. And so one day while he's on the trip with Paul and Barnabas, Mark is going to get in a situation that's overwhelming to him. And so Mark quits. When Mark quits, Paul gives up on Mark. Because Paul's saying if he can't cut it, I don't want to have anything to do with him. He's a loser. He's from Ohio. Why would we take him along? <laughs> Which, by the way, if you want to email you. Me, you can email me at brianmode at gmail.com about that joke there. Anyway, um, the point of the matter is, is Brian, or what I'm saying Brian. Anyway, Paul gives up on Mark. But Barnabas says to Paul, I believe in him. Mark, you might feel like you can't cut it, but I think that you can. And so on the next missionary journey that they go on, what Barnabas is going to say to Paul is if you don't take Mark, you don't take me because I believe in Mark. Can you imagine the confidence that that brought to Mark, that, that Barnabas is going to believe in him and take him and journey with him? And even though it caused him to lose his friendship with Paul, he was so loyal to Mark that he took him with him. But his loyalty was so much of an attribute that it became a fault. Because if you read the book of Galatians, which is where we're going to be at in a moment here, in Galatians chapter 2, Barnabas, who's the son of encouragement, is going to find himself in a sticky wicket. So in the early church, when they would gather, just like when you guys came in here, depending on what campus you went to, most of our campuses, we had some kind of treat. And here at the Hastings campus, we had popcorn. At every gathering in the New Testament church, they had food. They actually had a meal called the agape feast or the love feast. And at that feast, there were two tables. There was one table devoted to the Gentiles and one table devoted to the Jews. The Jews led in their lives by the kosher laws. They believed that Jesus had come into their life and they don't have to keep those ceremonial laws anymore because they're fulfilled in Jesus, but they still decided culturally that's how they wanted to live and eat. The Jews or the Gentiles didn't have those kind of ideas. They ate pork and all kind of other stuff. Here's what's going to happen in Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 11. This is Paul now speaking. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, the name Cephas is another name for Peter. It's the Aramaic name for Peter. So Peter's name in Greek is Peter Petros. His Aramaic name is Cephas. Same guy. It would be like if you were Spanish or if you're, your Spanish name, if your name is George, would be Jorge in Spanish. But it goes on to say this in verse 11. This is why Paul got into a confrontation with Peter. 
He said, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So before the Jewish leaders come, Peter is okay hanging out with the Gentiles, just chilling with them and eating what they eat. But then when the Jewish Christians come, that people-pleasing thing comes out of him, and comes out in him, and he gets up from the Gentile table, goes and sits down with the Jewish people. And here's what Paul says in verse 13. He says, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So Peter's hypocrisy affects Barnabas. And you understand why. Because Barnabas, he's a Levite. So this is what he grew up with, the Jewish table. But now he's under grace. And, and because of what Jesus has done, he feels like, I really should be hanging out with the Gentiles. But because I'm unconditionally loyal, I don't know which one that I should be with. I, I, I'm Jewish, but I love the Gentiles. Does it make me less Jewish if I eat with the Gentiles? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a chameleon. Here's what I've learned about when you and I are shackled to our shoulds. Number one, it creates guilt. It creates guilt. If you're sitting in here or you're watching me online in Delton or Middleville and guilt is a constant part of your life, it's because there's something that you're doing or you're not doing that you feel like you should be doing. It's as simple as that. The, the shoulds create guilt in our lives and we think to ourselves, I should be a better mom. I thought I was a good mom, but then I look on social media and I see super mom, and then I think I'm a terrible mom. Here's what's true of every man who's sitting here listening to me, and I know this to be true because this is something that every single man I've ever met deals with, me included, is that every man that I know at some point in their life deals with massive insecurity. Here's why. Because here's what we all need as men, is we need somebody in our life to affirm us that we're good enough. We need somebody in our life to say, you got what it takes. And I know that you messed up, and I know that that business project that you started and you tried, it didn't quite work out, but you've got what it takes. But for most of us as men, at some point we feel like we don't have what it takes. And there's something on the inside of us that we push ourselves, we drive ourselves because we feel like we're not good enough. And that's what Barnabas is wrestling with, is guilt. But here's the last thing that I see in the life of Barnabas, which is true of all of us, when we are shackled to our shoulds, is that oftentimes it leads to character compromises. See, here's the case. So Barnabas knows what's right. He knows because of Jesus, it doesn't matter what table you sit at, because all of that was pointing to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament law was pointing to Jesus. But because of this pressure that he feels on inside of him, he compromises his character. Here's the way I wrote it down in my notes. As I wrote it down like this, is that oftentimes our shoulds will cause us to do things we said we never would do. It's what I feel like I should be that will cause me to take shortcuts that I never said I would take. Here's how that plays out. 
Some of you are in cells and, and, and you desire to be a man or woman of integrity and you've always said to yourself, hey, I'm going to do everything I can to persuade people, but what I'm never going to do is lie because that's my character that's on stake. But in the moment, because you feel like you should always be number one, in that moment of pressure, the should to be number one will cause you to then compromise the character that you have. Or, or what about this? I should always have it together. Because I grew up in a family, and, I, and this is hypothetical, you grew up in a family where what you learned is that real men don't need counseling. So just, you got it. Don't, don't, don't act weak. Weak people go to counseling. And so in the moment where you're under pressure, instead of saying, I need help, what you do is you fake it. Barnabas is in that moment, and then Paul is courageous enough to call him out. And say, come on, Barnabas. You don't always have to be the son of encouragement. At times, you've got to be the son of truth. You've got to stand up for what you believe in. And in that moment, when you get free from the shoulds, you can be who God has called you to be. Here's how that kind of played out in my life. So, you know, I'm pushing and pushing and pushing. Have this moment where it all breaks down. i got to realize that, hey, I don't always have it together. And here's what happened, is I experienced grace. Here's what God's grace does. It doesn't make you perfect, but it allows you to accept the journey and the progress along the way. God's grace is not a license not to live up to what God's called you to, but it's an invitation to walk with God and trust Him for the process. I'm going to end with this. In Matthew chapter 11, in the message version, in Eugene Peterson's message version, here's how he describes grace and what Jesus said. Matthew 11, starting at verse 28, he says, are you tired, worn out, and burned out on religion? Are you tired of not living up, always feeling guilty every time you come to church? This is Jesus speaking. He says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. You know, have you ever had this happen? You go on vacation and then you actually need a vacation from your vacation. And the reason why is because the whole time you were away, you were thinking about all the things that you should be doing. And what you need is not a vacation, you need rest for your soul. Jesus says, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you will learn how to live freely and lightly. It's not an invitation to be a slacker. It's an invitation to receive grace and help. Todd Clark writes it like this. He says, Jesus didn't just come to remove our sins. He also came to remove our burdens. Jesus wants to teach us a new way of life. It's the way of grace. Grace is humble and easy and light. Grace means I don't have to live up to all the unrealistic expectations and standards. I am still loved. I'm still accepted. Just as I am, not as I think I should be. And that's all possible because of Jesus. 
I'm going to close with this final quote from Brennan Manning in his book, All is Grace. He writes, Jesus is crazy about you. He loves you just as you are, not as you should be. Thank you for listening to the Thornapple Valley Church Podcast. If you found this message encouraging, we invite you to share it. For more information, visit tbcweb.com.